Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, well, praise the Lord. Good morning, everybody, and uh, happy few days after Thanksgiving. Um, Just wanted to let you know as we begin here that the next few Sundays after today are going to be real special. We're going to have some Christmas-themed lessons from some guest teachers, a couple of the men in our church. We're going to hear from uh, Milt Matchek next week and, Lord willing, Jason Turcott in that week after that. And then the week after that, we have Joel Matchek who's going to share uh, what's been going on in Ukraine. So, uh, so he's going to have a five-hour lesson that morning. So <laughs> but, um, but you won't want to miss all those Sundays, so be sure to be around here, okay? We're going to try to finish out Romans chapter 6 today, the amazing, amazing, amazing book of Romans, the foundation of our faith. Um, Look at this carving here. I want to start with this this morning, uh, if you can kind of see it, a little fuzzy there in that picture. This, uh, this is now, this is now located at the British Museum. It's from the mid-700s B.C., it's a carving of the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser II, who is mentioned in Scripture. He's the one who uh, came in and uh, overcame Israel. He's, the carving is of him putting his foot on the head of one of his enemies. And this is a picture in those days the mon- when a monarch would defeat his enemy. They would take the king or the general out in front of everybody and they would put his foot he would put his foot on their neck. And obviously, it's a, a picture of their dominance. And this is the picture that kind of came to my mind when I was thinking about Romans. <laughs> We've been studying from the beginning. This is, this is us down here <laughs> before we were saved. This is sin putting its foot on our neck. Sin has dominion over people. We are all under sin. We are all under uh, the wrath of God then. We are locked into Adam's DNA. And we will die. There's no choice that we have in the matter. And there's no hope to get out of this unless someone saves us from the dominion of sin. And that's what we talked about We are under sin, the first part of Romans, and then we go into the justification of the sinner where God places his righteousness on our account. He actually places a supernatural righteousness that we couldn't ever attain and puts it on our account so we can uh, uh, overcome sin. But as I was thinking about this, when that happens then and we get saved and we are justified, then the whole uh, script, script flips. I also think of this other image in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and it's this one. If you can see this, it's the foot of Jesus crushing Satan's head. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 reminds us that he would, the Satan would be able to bruise the heel of Jesus, but Jesus would crush his head. The seed of woman would crush Satan's head. 
This is a reference to the cross of Jesus. Jesus crushed Satan by defeating sin once and for all. And now this is what we need to be thinking. Anybody who is now in Christ shares in the victory that Christ has over sin. So as we go through Romans now, it's clear that God wants us to have this kind of a mindset when it comes to sin. If we're saved, if we have Jesus in us, then here's the image that we should have. Sin is under Jesus' foot and we are in Christ. Sin does not have dominion over us. We have dominion over sin. It's a defeated enemy. It has no power over me. I am not under sin. I am over sin in Christ. But here's the problem. Knowing all of this, we still sin. (laughs) And we still struggle with temptation to sin. And so, in Romans chapter 6, Paul writes then about how a person has spiritual victory over sin, and that person then can bring that spiritual victory over sin and bring that into a victory over sin in their daily life. It's the doctrine of sanctification. So we go from the condemnation of sinners in the early part of Romans to the justification of sinners, and now we're looking at the sanctification of sinners where it's a process done by God with our participation, and he will make us holy over our lives, more like Christ. So here's a quick review. Here's how we started the chapter last week with the ridiculous question that some people might ask. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Sounds really good. (laughs) We just sin more and then we get more grace. Man, what a beautiful idea. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Grace and sin are opposites. How can a true Christian who is dead to sin be okay with living in sin? That's a complete opposite situation and you can't be. We are now in Christ, not in Adam. When Jesus died, our old man died and it stayed in the tomb. When Jesus rose, we were reborn as a brand new person. So how does this brand new person live his life? If that's the spiritual case in my life, if that's what's happened to me, then how do I live my life? Where it says it in verse four of chapter six, it says we walk in newness of life, a brand new way of living. It also says it in verse 13, unto God, we live unto God. So how do we live this new life unto God? And that's where we left off last week. There's three important words that we remember for our strategy against sin in this life. And number one we talked about was the word know, K-N-O-W. Verse three says to know, know ye not. Verse six says knowing this. Verse nine says know, knowing that. So God, first of all, wants us to know all these things I've just talked about. That we are spiritually over sin. Our foot in Christ, our foot is over sin. We're not under sin. We need to know that. Without that knowledge at the very beginning, then we are defeated by sin from the start. And this is why I said we need to have that image in our mind. Now, like I mentioned last week, it's like when slavery in the United States ended. The slaves needed to know first that they were free before they could actually live in that freedom and exercise that freedom. So God wants us to know that we are no longer slaves to sin. That needs to be known in our minds. That's why many people need, uh, choose to memorize Romans chapter 6. So once you know that, then what's the next thing? It says in verse 11, we need to reckon. Reckon. 
Look at verse 11, everybody. Romans 6, verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Reckon ye yourselves dead indeed. Now, this is a very personal statement. Reckon ye yourselves. Reckon ye yourselves. It's very personal now. We bring it into who we are. We have to reckon ourselves dead indeed. What does that mean? It means to count this as true for me without any doubt. So I've taken this knowledge of what has happened to me, that that, uh, I am dead to sin, I'm alive in Christ, I take that knowledge and now I make it personal. The word reckon there is an accounting term. It's actually the same Greek word as the words we've already looked at as imputed, So I'm putting something into an account. It's an accounting term. But metaphorically, it means to count on something with full confidence. Put your full faith in something. And the word indeed means without doubt. So take this truth and put it in your heart. Have full faith in it. Have full confidence in it without any doubt. This is what is true. We take this as a spiritual truth that the old you is dead. There's a new you that is free from sin. Your foot is over sin in Christ. Count it as true. Put it deep in your hearts. It's not just a truth. It's the truth for my life. We might say, take this from your head to your heart. Take this from your head to your heart. Reckon means not to just look at it as a few nice verses in the Bible, but see it, this is something that needs to impact me every single day of my life. And let me ask you, does it? Does it change your life, just knowing this? You know, I would say that this is the place, if we're looking at just this practically here, we're saying, okay, I know these truths, and now I'm gonna put them into my heart. At this, at this point right now, if you really have grasped this, this is where you, a person falls in love with Jesus. This is that where you take it from just a, a, um, a bunch of truths to something that you absolutely love and appreciate. When knowing becomes loving. And I think many people are stuck right here. Yeah, I have this knowledge, I hear this, I hear what you're saying, but it hasn't gone all the way the distance into my heart. I haven't fallen in love with Jesus because of, because of what he's done. I, I, I don't know if it's really for me or if it's just kind of for everybody else. No, this is for you. This is what Jesus has done for you. You are in Christ. Your foot is over sin. You do not have to live under sin. Sin does not have to have dominion over you. And then third, after we know this and we reckon this now, we bring it deep into our heart in a personal way, and now third, we yield. Verse 12, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. So if these things are true in our hearts, if this is a true thing, it's a true statement, I know it, and now I've brought it deep within my heart, it's, it's mine now, then now I need to work it out into my life, into my mortal body. It needs to be something that in, it's, I'm doing with my body every day. Paul is t- saying, take this spiritual truth and put it into actual daily practice. Do not let sin reign over your body. Don't let it. Treat it like a whack-a-mole, okay? Just don't let it. If sin pops up, you smack it back down. That's what we have to do with sin. Sin starts popping its head, we knock it down. Some might say, but wait a second, I feel bound to this sin, almost like I can't break free from a sin. 
Don't look at it that way. Don't look at it that way. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. It's a spiritual truth. It is a truth that that you as a believer, if I put my trust in Christ, it does not have rule over me. It does not have spiritual control over me. It's not my dictator. I do not have to do what it says, and I can get through this. So don't let it control your body either. You can stop sin, and you can, and we can live for God. Never stop fighting. Never stop fighting. Never stop fighting. Never stop fighting. We never stop fighting sin. And you keep going, and you keep going. If you have sinned, we confess it to the Lord. We get his forgiveness. We turn from it, and then we keep moving forward. We keep knocking it down, knocking it down, knocking it down, knocking it down. And we stay at it and stay at it. And we keep making daily choices to live over sin, not under sin. But here's the daily key. Here's something I think that is so practical and so needed in all of this that Paul gives us here that is crucial to be able to do this and to overcome sin. Verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Again, this is so practical, so helpful. If you, we have to get now our body involved. We have to move from our head to our heart and now to our hands. See, we begin now by yielding. Every morning, we yield our body to a new master. We yield our members, that is our body parts, specifically is what he's talking about. We start yielding up and surrendering our body parts. This is what we do to overcome sin. Every body part is now given to the master, a new master. We start with the knowledge of victory. We believe it. We personalize it. We put it in the heart. We whack it down if it tries to rule us, and then we start surrendering. Surrendering my life for righteousness, to do the right thing so that I won't do the wrong thing. Listen, this morning, whatever you sense... Whatever you sense that the Lord is telling you to surrender, then you ought to do it. And this is the key to practical living and overcoming sin. See, what we're talking about here is a once and for all surrender, but it leads to a daily surrender. See, there is a moment in everybody's life where we have to surrender all of our members. We need to. If we have, again, if, if you've only gone as far as just getting it into your heart, that's a good thing, but now it needs to work itself out. And we do that by fully surrendering our life. Jesus, every part of me is yours. My hands, my feet, my mind, my eyes, my ears, everything. Are you fighting sin in your life? If God has put his finger on something, then try this. Start every day this next week by consciously giving every part of your body to the Lord so that he can use it for that day. And say, Lord, I want you to use this for righteousness. If you're trying to think better thoughts, then give your brain as an instrument of righteousness to the Lord. Lord, this morning I give my mind to you. It is now an instrument of righteousness. I yield it completely. I surrender it to you for your leadership. And what I think about, Lord, I want it to be righteous. If you're, not, if you're trying not to look at certain things, then give your eyes as instruments of righteousness. If you're trying not to hear certain things, then give your ears as 
instruments of righteousness. If you're trying to stop saying things that you shouldn't say to your family, then give your mouth as an instrument of righteousness. Lord, this mouth is an instrument of righteousness. It's no longer an instrument of unrighteousness. And keep going down, your hands, your feet, your whole body. It's simply about giving every part as an instrument to the Lord. The Greek word for instrument is a word for tool or a word for weapon, which is a great analogy against fighting sin as we, as we face sin every single day. This is how we fight. We yield. But I sometimes will actually, because the King James used the word instrument, it's probably just in my head, but I'll, I'll sometimes think about this as a musical instrument. And I, that's kind of my mental picture. Lord, I want my body parts to be used to create a wonderful melody in this world. And you are the musician. I am just the instrument. I, without you, there is just nothing going to happen. Your spirit has to blow through me, and that sound always, that sound needs to be a good sound and a righteous sound. And I've prayed that many times. And that's why God has saved us. He wants to use all of us as an instrument. That's what the sanctification process is really all about. In the Old Testament, when he sanctified something, it was so that it could be used for holy purposes. And that's why we are sanctified, so that we can be used for holy purposes on this earth. God is the end user of our life, and he wants to be able to use it in his way. So let me just say, if you have not yet surrendered your life completely to the Lord, this is where it needs to, this is where it needs to start. This is where it needs to happen. But as we now move to the second half of this chapter, Paul is going to summarize all that he just has said in this one verse here, really, and that is verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. In other words, hear me in this, sin is not your master, as we've already talked about. It does not have dominion over you. You need to remember that. And Paul, again, is just reiterating what he's already said. But why doesn't it have uh, dominion over you? Another reason, not just that you are dead to sin and you're alive to Christ, but there's another reason, and that is that you are not under the law but under grace. Or maybe we could say it this way. You are not under the law for salvation, but under grace for salvation. See, this statement that he gives, you're not under the law but under grace, is a statement of a, as a description of a saved person. He's saying, basically, sin shall not have dominion over you because you're saved. You're a Christian. For Paul, being under the law means you're outside of Christ. You're unsaved. It means you're trying by law-keeping to be saved. You think that by keeping the law, I'm going to get saved and God's going to let me into heaven. Well, somebody who believes that uh, can never actually say, sin uh, shall not have dominion over me. If you're saying, I'm going to do good, do good to get to heaven, then sin will never have, or excuse me, sin will always have dominion over you. You will never be able to say, I'm over sin. Because you're trying to earn heaven and you've never received God's free offer of grace. And so sin will always have the upper hand in your life. It just will. And that's the whole context here in this, in this whole passage. But someone who has been saved by God's grace, it's a totally different situation. Totally different. They can say sin does not have dominion over me. 
Why? Because God's grace has given them everything they need to break sin's power and to live in a righteous way. Grace is the thing that empowers somebody to live right and to have that power over sin spiritually and practically. So Paul's basically saying sin does not have dominion over you because you are truly saved. You're a born-again Christian, so don't ever think And you have everything that you need, so don't ever think that sin has dominion over you. So upon reading that, someone may ask this then. Since I'm not under the law for salvation, and uh, then Paul, here let me ask this. Am I under the law for morality then? As a Christian, can, can I just do whatever I want? Since I'm not under the law as a means of salvation? Verse 15, that's what he answers. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Paul again gives this emphatic, may it never be. God forbid, spit, spit, gag, gag. That's a, that is what that means. And in the next few verses, <clears throat> Paul is going to continue to show how ridiculous this concept is. That I'm going to sin because I've been saved. Under, by grace, I've been saved by God's grace, and so now I can just sin. That is ridiculous. And this time he's going to show how going down that road, though, will lead to some horrible and uncontrollable consequences in your life. It's the worst possible mistake you can make. And, you, and I hope we can see after this how bad it would be for somebody to tell somebody, it, it, don't worry about it. it. It's under grace, go ahead and sin, no big deal. You know, it's so unfortunate that I even have to talk about this, the fact that some Christians really do look at grace this way. It's like a free pass to not have to obey God's laws. But this teaching has led to some horrible things in Christians' lives. And it's it's really important to see how Paul deals with it here. First of all, this statement is totally misconstruing what grace actually is. If you say, let's continue in sin, the grace may abound, or... Can I sin because I'm not under law but under grace? Remember that grace and sin are opposites. They can't really live together. Uh, how succinct, look, look how succinctly Paul put this in Titus chapter two, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And what does it teach us, this grace? Teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lusts, We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Listen, if your version of grace is not teaching these exact things, teaching that denying ungodliness, worldly lusts, living soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, if your version of grace is not teaching that, then you do not have, you do not understand biblical grace. It is not biblical grace. Second thing here is that the question, that if somebody asks this question, should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? I'm saved, so I, I can just sin. Well, that reveals that you don't understand how God's salvation system actually works, which is what Paul now is going to describe in the rest of this chapter. See, some people think, I'm gonna set it up here for us. Some people think that God's system works like the free agency system in the sports world. Sorry to use a sports analogy here. But a free agent is somebody who has fulfilled his contract and he's now under no obligation. So he's out from under a team, he's fulfilled his, con- uh, his contract, he can now go to any team in that sports world 
that he chooses or they choose him. But he is free to choose whichever team he wants to be on. See, some people think that that's how this salvation thing works. That God saved us. He, he gave us his grace. He, he pulled us out of sin and he makes us a free agent. Now we get to choose whatever we want to do. We're under no obligation from anybody. We don't belong to any real team. It's just team me, I guess. And we can choose whatever we want to do. I don't really have to obey God's laws because I'm a free agent. And he has to forgive me, so I guess I can just do whatever I want. That's the mindset of some people. But Paul's going to show that that is, you do not understand how this whole thing works. And by the way, if you think that, it's very convenient doctrine, isn't it? I can have the best of both worlds. But here's what we'll see in these next verses. In God's world, there's no such thing as a free agent. It doesn't even exist. You're always on one team or the other. Always. You are either a slave to righteousness or you are a slave uh, to sin. And that's it. Once you're saved, you are on a team. You are on Team Jesus. And you either follow him or you'll pay a steep price. Verse 16, here we go. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So Paul uses the example of slavery to explain his point here. By the way, slavery was very prevalent in ancient Rome. They say that about a third of the Roman Empire were slaves. So if you were a Christian at the, in ancient Rome here in, in Paul's time, you'd be sitting in church and either you'd be sitting next to a slave or the person they're sitting next to is a slave. But uh, you're going to have somebody in the church, you're going to know quite a few slaves. It was a very understood system in Rome. And, that's, and so Paul uses this as an example, as an illustration. And what is the one thing that everyone universally knows about slavery? And that is a slave must obey his master. That's just, you are locked into this situation. You are locked in completely and you must obey. Obedience is the earmark of slavery. So the point here is when you're unsaved and you yield yourself to sin, you're a slave to sin. You have to obey sin. When you're locked into, into Adam's DNA, when you're locked into, you're in Adam, you are a slave to sin and you have to obey him. But when you get saved and you yield yourself to Jesus, you're now a slave to righteousness. You have to obey God's righteous commands. I like what one Baptist pastor said. If you're under grace, you are bound to obey. He said in the way you are bound to in two ways. We are bound to as in we are certain to, and we are bound to in the sense that we must. I'm, I'm bound to, and I'm bound to. I'm bound to obey. So Paul clarifies this in the next verse, what he's talking about. Look at this, verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have now, basically, have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. So Paul tells the Romans that he thanks God that they were the servants of sin. That means they used to be unsaved. But now you've obeyed that form of doctrine which was delivered you, that is the gospel. You've obeyed it, that just means you exercise faith in Christ and you believe that gospel that Paul and the others have been preaching. So at that moment, 
You became more free than you ever have been before. Verse 18, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Being then made free from sin, now you're made the slave of righteousness. That's who you are. So here is the believer's new position. We are free from sin and a slave to righteousness. That is our new life when we're in Jesus. Because you are saved, you're now free from ruining your life with sin. You no longer have to ruin your life. You no longer have to be destroyed in this life and you no longer have to go to hell. You have now joined a group of people who are all free from sin. They've broken off the shackles. Sin does not have dominion over them any longer. But remember, this freedom comes with the confines of righteousness. See, freedom does not mean that the absence of moral restraints or, or moral absolutes. That's silly. To say that, oh, great, I'm saved. Now it doesn't matter. I can murder whoever I want to murder. Thank the Lord. I can steal whatever I want to steal. Thank the Lord. I can lie whenever I want to. Thank the Lord. Listen, think of it like this. Okay, suppose a skydiver, he's 10,000 feet up, and he's about to go off out of the plane, but he says, you know what? This, this, this parachute is really uncomfortable. I don't like it, and I'm going to live in my freedom. I'm taking this parachute off. I'm jumping out. Well, he's going to find out that there's a greater law than his, what he thinks, and that is the law of gravity. But if this, when the skydiver chooses instead to put on the constraint of the parachute, then when he jumps out of the plane, he's actually free. He's free to enjoy uh, the exhilaration of, of flying in the air but he has still that constraint on him. God's moral laws act the same way. They restrain, but they're absolutely necessary so that we can enjoy the exhilaration of our new freedom in Christ. Our new freedom says, I am no longer bound to sin, I don't have to sin, I can now obey Jesus, and I am free to do so. See, you have become a servant or a slave of God's moral righteousness. Spiritually, spiritually speaking now, this is who we are as a saved person, whether you fully realize it or not. Once you surrender to Jesus, you surrender everything and everything that Jesus is about, which is, what is Jesus about? What is he about? Is he about obedience to what God says? Is he about a righteous life or is he about sin? See, we're all about him and it's exhilarating when we follow him. So what do we do with this knowledge? Just as we talked about earlier, we need to take that truth and make it a part of our daily practical life. And that's what Paul heads into next. It needs to go from our head to our heart and out to our hands. Verse 19, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now, Yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. So there it is, a believer's new command. And that is to yield your members as slaves to righteousness. It's a spiritual truth that you are a slave to righteousness, so now make it a practical thing in your daily life that you yield up your members as instruments, as slaves of righteousness. The Holy Spirit gives a little disclaimer here at the very beginning of the verse. And he says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. In other words, 
slavery is not a perfect analogy here. He's talking about slavery and he says it's not a perfect analogy for the born again person. And I think what God is doing here is he is acknowledging that there are certain negative parts of slavery. And those don't apply to God. But Paul has to speak after the manner of men because we're so limited in our spiritual understanding. This is, this is deep stuff here that we're talking about. And there's a certain depth to it that is even just beyond our fleshly ability to fully comprehend. And so he says, I'm using this analogy here so that you'll really grasp what I'm saying. I have to use this illustration even though it's imperfect. But the point is here, because of the spiritual truth of being bound to righteousness, then what we need to do is we need to yield or surrender our bodies in a joyful obedience, a practical righteousness that then leads to a holy life, a life that honors Christ, a life that helps others, a life that is an example to the next generation coming up of how to follow God in obedience, a life that shows the world how amazing and how holy God actually is that's what we're supposed to be doing. And that thing is supposed to grow every single day. And what he says here is just as you used to yield your body parts to sin, and it got worse and worse and worse in your life, and every time you would sin, you'd be led to another sin. Sin is never alone. It's just iniquity after iniquity after iniquity after iniquity. It just keeps getting worse and worse. Just as that started to happen, so now what we need to do is to yield our members as servants of righteousness that will lead to greater and greater and greater and greater holiness in our life. This is the sanctification process. It's the cleansing thing that God is trying to do in all of us. It's the work that he's trying to do, making us more like Jesus Christ. We should be more holy, think about this, the older we get. We should be more holy the older we get. Let me ask you a question. Do you still listen to, the, to God's conviction. Are you still listening to the conviction of God when he speaks to you? When is the last time that you changed something in your life, a daily thing in your life or even a weekly thing? When's the last time you changed something in your life simply because God convicted you in the heart while you were praying or reading your Bible alone? When's the last time you've done, you've, you've done that? You practically said, okay, you know what, Lord, you're speaking to me about this area of my life. I'm gonna make a difference. It's gonna make a difference. That's what we're talking about here. That our lives should be so entwined with Jesus, so connected, that we're taking the spiritual truth. We are not under sin, we are over sin, and Lord, now you're speaking to me, and now I am gonna take what you've said to me in my heart, and your word, and I'm gonna make this a living thing. Every day, every day, I'm gonna yield my members. I'm gonna yield as a slave of righteousness. And there's another area I need to lay down. There's another area I need to lay down. There's another area I need to lay down. Paul ends this portion by reminding us of the heavy price we pay for sin. Christian or not. Verse 20. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. In other words, you, when you were unsaved, you really didn't have the power to live righteously. You just did whatever pleased you, not what pleased God. And where did that lead? Verse 21, what fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? 
for the end of those things is death. Go ahead, God says, look back and tell me what you gained by living in disobedience to God. What fruit did you get from those shameful things that you did? What good, you know, and sometimes I, I feel like some people will give, you know, their life story or something and they'll look back and sometimes almost look like with fondness toward their sin. God says, come on, that's the, you know that's the enemy. What fruit did you get? What fruit did you get from those shameful things that you did? What good has anger ever done for you? What good has lust ever done for you? What good has greed ever done for you? What good has pride ever done for you? Nothing. They all lead to death. They lead to death of relationships. They lead to death of joy. They lead to death of peace. They lead to death. Sin always leads to death. It always does. They never, those things have never led to life. Verse 22, but now, being made free from sin, that's you and me as a believer, and become servants to God, slaves to God. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. And there you have a believer's future. Holiness and, and eternal life. See, now that everything has changed, you're free from sin and you're a slave now to God. You obey him. And that leads to a holy life. And that bears fruit in your life. And once this life is over, you live eternally with Jesus. That's a Christian's life. You obey him, at least to a holier and holier life that bears fruit. You're bearing fruit all over the place. And you know what's so cool about fruit? When we bear fruit, people can walk right up to you and get to share that fruit. They get to pull a fruit off of you. You're just popping out with fruit and you're blessing everybody around you. And people say, oh man, I can... I, I'm, I'm so filled when I'm around them. I, I, I sense something different when I'm around that person. It's the fruit. And you bear fruit and bear fruit and bear fruit. And once this life is all done, and we go across and we go to heaven, then we live eternally with Jesus. Such a wonderful way to live. It's so much better than living as a slave to sin. And the implication here in all this is, why would you go back and live like an unsaved person? Why would you do that? It always led to death. Why would you go and live like a slave again? Why would you go back to these things that brought death? Disobeying the moral righteousness and the standards and the law of God is just stupid. It leads to death. That's what this is saying. Why would you disobey the master who saved you? And that's how it's in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this is interesting because this verse, we usually use it for the unsaved, but actually in context it's for the saved. But it's a reminder of what God has done. You're, the wages of sin is death and it still is. It brings death in every area of life. It's just an eternally true principle here. Sin brings death, Jesus brings life. That's just, that's just the bottom line. And that's how it always will be. And so really it gets down to this. Which one will you choose? That's it. Which one will you choose? Sin brings death, Jesus brings life. Which one will you choose? We have it so good as a child of God. 
Why would we mess this up and go backward into a life of sin? I end with this. You've probably heard this story before, but I think it's so powerful, and it's a good one to keep in our minds when we're talking about this. During the 14th century, there was a man named Reynald III. He was a duke in what is now Belgium. And he had a violent fight with his brother, Reynald's younger brother, Edward. But Edward successfully revolted against him and took over the leadership. When Edward captured Reynald, what he did was, instead of killing his brother, he built a room around Reynald. And he put a window and a door in there with no lock on the door and promised him, Reynald, when you can walk out of this room, I will give you your title back to the throne and all your property. The problem with this is that Reynald was well known for being grossly overweight. He was huge. He could not fit through the door. And so he said, as soon as you can lose the weight and get out of this door, it's all yours again. Edward knew, though, that his older brother could not control his appetite. And so what he did was, every day, he sent him delicious food to his room. Just beautiful plates of food. And every day, as you can imagine, Reynald just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Anytime somebody accused Edward of, you, you're treating your brother cruelly, he would say, listen, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he wills. You know, Reynald stayed in that room for 10 years. And he wasn't released until after Edward died in battle. But by then his health was so ruined, he died within a year. But here's the thing, he was a prisoner of his own appetite. And just like Reynald was really a slave to his own appetites, that's what sin will do. It will enslave anybody who yields to it. The Christian is not a prisoner of sin. We can say no. We don't have to sin. We have power over sin. We don't have to live like that. So do not live and go back and become a slave to sin and face all the consequences that that brings. And that's what Paul is saying here. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes? Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.